0: Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China. I am your host, Jeremy Goldkorn, hosting sort of solo today because Kaiser's traveling, but I am joined by a guest who is so regular that I think he's soon just going to be a co-host, uh, David Moser, academic director at CET in Beijing. Welcome back, David.
1: Thank you. I'm feeling regular today. I had my laxatives last night,
0: and I'm okay. Okay, no, no, I don't think you'll be becoming a, a co-host. That's definitely too much information. Um, so today's guest, we are very, very happy to have for the first time on uh, Seneca, um, Derek Sandhouse. He is the author of Baijiu, the Essential Guide to Chinese Spirits, a um, uh, previous resident of Chengdu for how many years, Derek?
2: Uh, I was in Chengdu for two years and Shanghai five years before that.
0: And uh, he uh, started a blog to uh, basically drink his way through the entire uh, canon, as it were, of baijiao in China. And it is now uh, a book. And he's in Beijing uh, from D.C., where he's living at the moment, to uh, do some speaking events at the Bookworm uh, Literary Festival. And we're lucky to have him on the show. Welcome, Derek. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, so let's here. start uh, by asking you why uh, you know most foreigners think of uh, Baizhou, uh make retching noises. Uh, what <laughs> what prompted you to uh, do this blog and this book? I think it all started with
2: making a retching noise myself. I was in the back seat of a cab after a business meeting in Shanghai one day when I just was asking myself, why would anyone do this to themselves? Why do the Chinese have these business meetings where they drink bottle after bottle of Baijiu and you go off with this headache and feeling dizzy? And so I wanted to figure out what it was that made Baijiu so important to people here in China.
0: Were you actually drunk at the time? Or... <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I went back uh, to it the was off. It was after a, a boozy...
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. At the time, we'd been working on some books at my office where we were looking at different cultural aspects of China. And I thought, by Joe, this is one cultural aspect that I don't know a single foreigner that understands. So what can I do to figure out what's going on here? So how did you go about your research? Well, I was really lucky because my wife's work took me to Chengdu. And soon after I arrived there, I'd still been, you know, had this idea to write a book about baijiu in the back of my head. And I learned that Sichuan is the center of the baijiu industry in China, um, as much as 70% of all the baijiu in China comes from Sichuan. So I was in the right place, I had some time to work on this book, and there was this really convoluted theory that said that if you drank 300 shots of baijiu, you would go from hating it to loving it, that you would cross some magical threshold, <laughs> as with a uh, beer or coffee. You know, they say that you don't like it the first time you have it, but you have five or six drinks and you start to like it. And someone... <laughs> but you don't need three hundred cups of coffee before you start
0: to like coffee.
1: This is masochism, is what it is.
0: <laughs> well, at, at cup number number what did you start liking, Joe Or do you like Joe <laughs> I do quite
2: like Baijo and. It happened around cup number 60, and I think that it had less to do with crossing any amount of volume. I don't think there's a volume limit to how much you have to drink to like Baijiu. I think it had more to do with finding the correct Baijiu for my personal tastes. So what is that? The Baijiu that converted me was Lu Laojiao's Lao San, the uh, 1573 national cellar Ah,
0: that's advertised. You see yeah, this here yeah. on advertisements, mm-hmm. and um, so uh, what, what? Why do you think this one appealed to you?
2: Well, it had a really complex flavor that's kind of characteristic of the Sichuanese Baijo's. but unlike a lot of the cheaper ones, this was a really smooth drink. It went down on the back end like a vodka; it didn't burn or produce a gag reflex or anything like that. It was a really complex but well balanced spirit, and. I like to drink spirits, so that, that was a rewarding experience to find.
1: But cor- Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know how you drink baijiu, Jeremy, but I associate baijiu is something you eat with a meal. You take with a meal. It's not like you're at home and you invite your friends, you know, have a little bit of baijiu like you do with whiskey or something. Isn't
2: its Am I wrong about that? Or No, that's absolutely correct. Uh, going back thousands of years, the way that traditional Chinese alcohols have been consumed is always with a meal, so... You drink Baijiu at a restaurant, you drink it at a home celebration or at a banquet at a hotel, but you never drink Baijiu at a club or a bar or um, but isn't, KTV. isn't that
0: really the case of all booze in China? Because, I mean, if you go into a, a small restaurant and you order a beer and no food, the waitresses will get uncomfortable and say, Well, you've got to have some peanuts or something. Yeah, you know, probably. I mean, they, I don't think, I mean, I think it's yeah. one of the reasons why China has a low alcoholism rate in a way is that. The culture doesn't encourage you. I mean, it's changing now with bars, but never used to be the case that you drank at all anything well, outside of uh, a meal, right? That,
1: that's something I was going to mention, actually, but maybe get into it right now, is is that it's always struck me that chi- – you always say alcoholism rates are rather, rather low here. But but I, it's always struck me that the people who ha- are alcoholics, the, the pattern it takes is, is they take people out to dinner or anytime they're out to dinner – they have to corral someone else into having a drink with them, you know, drinking with them. And their their whole point of the meal is to get absolutely blitzed. And, and they go home every night, you know, you know, completely unconscious. Those are alcoholics. I mean, That's true. Good, but they just don't do it at home alone watching right. A TV. You know?
0: Right, right. But it's a better form of it's alcoholism. A, yeah, it's a much healthier form of alcoholism. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we've gone through your favorite, Derek. Can you give us a brief tour of the Baijiu landscape? What are the big brands, you know, and, and what's the difference between them?
2: Sure. There's four main types of Baijiu, um, separated by their smell. One is called uh, Strong Aroma, and that's the Sichua- What's that in Chinese? Um, that's uh, Nongshan, uh, and that's, uh, that's the kind of Baijiu that they make in Sichuan, in the southwest, and that is usually made from sorghum that is fermented in these giant earthen pits— And over time, the microorganisms in the fermentation are supposed to seep into the mud walls and turn that pit into a device for fermenting future generations of the alcohol. And that uh, Baijiu has a very um, fruity and a very spicy taste. So it's similar a lot of times to bananas or pineapples in the, in the principal flavor that you get. So what are
0: some of the main brands? Um,
2: some of the main brands for strong aroma are Wu Liangye, Jiannan Chun, Shui um and there's countless others. Okay. But those are the... Big ones. So that's category one. And... That's category one. Then across the border in Guizhou, you have what's called sauce aroma or zhangjiang. and that's uh, the Baijiu that uh, is most famous by Guizhou Maotai, mm-hmm. uh the official party Baijiu since the times of Zhou and Li, and that is also fermented in pits, but stone pits instead of uh, mud pits, and. Th- this has a very complex flavor as well, similar to fermented beans, and uh, it can also get quite acidic because it's, uh, fer- it's distilled in several different cycles. Um, up in the north, where we are now, uh, we are at the center of the light aroma Baijiu industry, and that's uh, Qingchang, and uh, Arguoto is the principal
0: Light aromas, Argo yeah. interesting.
2: Yeah, because uh, Argo and other light aromas tend to be much more mild in their smell than the Southern Baijos. And the flavor is not as powerful or as layered as some of the other ones. So it tends to have kind of a mild floral sweetness, um, not as fruity as some of the southern is, ones. Is, none, is that any related to alcohol
1: content? In other words, the nongxiang, you're is that the most alcohol, or is it has not related?
2: No, it's only related to the flavor and smell, because um, Arguotou and uh, another relative of the, the laobigan, is uh, often bottled at 65 to 70% alcohol by volume. Mm. Whereas in the south, it's more common to be around fifty to fifty-five percent. Mm-hmm. So it's it's only related to the flavors, and those flavors in light aroma come because it's fermented in stone jars. It
1: it might be interesting just to tell listeners what why it's called Argotou. because a lot of, a lot of people don't know that.
0: And, and if you're not a you know a, a Beijing resident or familiar with the city, Argotou you know is a very powerful forty to almost sixty percent, depending on the brand alcohol and it, it is basically the drink of beijing yeah. and it's cheaper than water um <laughs> it is <Yeah. laughs> and less polluted <laughs> right yeah clearer well you know if it's it so, yeah. probably healthier than the water, yeah. so
1: why is it called
2: argotol <laughs> um it's called argotol which means two pot head yeah the second right. pot head the second, right. Right. and the reason that it's called argotol is because Back in Beijing during the Qing Dynasty, when this style of light aroma was invented, they were using pretty rudimentary uh, pot stills. And when they were distilling it... um, to distill something, you have to heat up the alcohol until it turns into a vapor, and then you cool it back down into a liquid. And so you cool it by running it through a pipe that's submerged in water. Uh, I'm sorry if this is getting too technical. No, no, no. But, it's fascinating. Um, when it goes, so what would happen when they were distilling things is that the water that they were using as a coolant would heat up. So they would have to continually be replacing the pot of water with fresh water to um, continue cooling down the spirit. And the second pot of water was supposed to contain the best quality spirit. So the Argo is the second pot in the distillation process. Wow. Okay, so then we've got one more category, right? Yeah, the final category is rice aroma. Almost all of the baijiu in China, probably 95%, is made out of sorghum as its base. Rice aroma is the only baijiu that's made entirely from rice and glutinous rice. And this is really popular down in southeastern China. Um, Guilin Sanhua is the big brand for um, rice aroma baijiu. And I encourage most foreigners who are skeptical of baijiu to try this type of baijiu first because... It's really mild in its flavor and its taste. It can be kind of mellow, easy to drink. It has notes of honey. And at its best, it can resemble a really nice sake in its flavor.
0: I was going to say, is it kind of like sake or soju? Because, I mean, those are also rice-based, aren't they? Um, the
2: Korean they Korean soju. Can, they can be based on a lot of things. Actually, huh. um, soju in Korea and shochu in Japan both come from what Baijiu used to be called in China, which was Xiaojou, or uh, burnt wine. Uh, so it's so, not
0: dependent on the grain used. It's, no, no, it's, the it's just the style. Right.
2: It, when drinks are made in the traditional uh, Asian distillation style. Um, so they're very similar drinks, but uh, rice aroma tends to be a lot stronger than a sake is. Sakes are usually you know around 20%, whereas these are 30 to 45
0: and why is Sichuan the such a big center of, of Baijiu production? Because I, I kind of would have guessed if if you hadn't told me that it, it would have been the northeast where it appears to me you have uh, a very heavy consumption of, of, of Baijiu.
2: Well, Sichuan historically is a very agrarian province. So the centers of Baijiu production tend to be in the places that have really um, strong agricultural traditions because the grain production is so closely um, correlated with the production of alcohol through, throughout Chinese history. So that's the main reason. Um, also, the certain geographical conditions of Sichuan are said to be really conducive to producing the types of yeasts and other microorganisms that create really complex flavors in Baijiu. Can I ask a
1: historical question Sure. Since you mentioned that? Uh, when did this Baijiu technology come into, you know, into being? And also, what, when you talk about the, the, the alcohol that was consumed in, in ancient China, what kind of alcohol would Li Bai have been drinking when he composed all those uh, poems about the, to the moon?
2: You know, what was he getting d- drunk on exactly?
1: Was it sorghum-based, or what kind of thing were you talking about?
2: Well, Li Bai would have been drinking Huangzhou.
1: Ah, oh, I drink Huangzhou quite a bit. How come I don't write poems about the moon? It's, or maybe I do, I just forget. I, I don't maybe, know, that anyway. sounds
2: like more of a personal question. <laughs> but Huangzhou was produced starting in the first millennia BC. Um, it involves uh, an advancement in the Chinese uh, fermentation technique. Mm-hmm. And so Huangzhou is the Chinese word for all grain-based Alcohols that aren't distilled in China, and right up into the twentieth century, Huangzhou was considered to be the more refined and sophisticated drink in China. So only recently has Baijiu been considered a prestige drink mm. in China, and that started when the communists uh,
0: nationalized the Baijiu industry. But so uh, it it came about because state owned uh, companies producing Baijiu were the most powerful. I mean. Why would they choose baijiu and not Huangjou?
2: Well, Huangjou is not very efficient in terms of how much alcohol you get for the amount of grain used. So for the party, it was really important early in their um, reign to... Uh, conserve grains to feed more people, but also another element to it is the fact that because Huangzhou was considered the drink of the aristocrats and the you know imperial ministers, um, Baijiu was considered more of the drink of the working man and the farmer. So wow. when there was a proletarian
0: revolution, it propelled the drink of the everyman up to the forefront. So and now, are you not getting Huangzhou companies marketing themselves by saying this used to, be, this is the stuff Li Bai dr- drank, this is the stuff the aristocrats used to drink? Because I mean, that is a, a sort of a positioning strategy of all kinds of alcohol, I- I- even in, right, in, in yeah. China, even now. You know, I think that definitely is at the
2: forefront of most uh, Huangzhou companies' marketing strategy. Um, the biggest uh, producer is still Zhejiang Province, um, and Shaoxing has the yeah, most. Shaoxing,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. And you, uh, I recommend a drunk while uh, heat it up and put a huamei, one of those preserved plums, in it and drink it. It's very good at night. But I, I have another historical question too. Sure. Uh, when when during the Richard Nixon visit and Kissinger, yeah, uh, the we know now in retrospect that Joe and and, um, and I guess you know, mainly Joe Zhou Enlai and the, and were, was very proud of the fact that, you know, he plied them with liquor the whole time. It, you know, Kissinger and, Nixon, uh, Kissinger and Nixon were probably completely, you know, sloshed to the, to the gills the whole time they were here. What were they drinking? Was that, was that, would that have been mao thai or the, what yeah, kind they, of baijiu would
2: they have been drinking? They were drinking guaijiu mao thai because in the 1950s, Joe and Enlai made the decision to uh, make mao Tai the official Chinese banquet beer that oh, would be okay. served at all state dinners so that's what they were drinking and there's actually a pretty great story about that where during the welcoming reception uh, he was drinking Maotai with Nixon and he wanted to show Ma- Nixon how powerful Maotai was so he poured a little bit in a saucer and lit it on fire with the mash <laughs> And then Nixon was so impressed by this that he took a bottle of Thai back with him to America and was showing this trick to his daughter. But the tea saucer that he used shattered under the heat <laughs> of the burning Thai and the table it was uh, placed upon caught fire. And so you had a moment when Baijo could have burnt down the White House. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, So how much Baijiu is drunk in China every year? And do you also have uh, figures for Huangzhou or other kinds of uh, Chinese alcohol?
2: Um, I don't have Huangzhou off the top of my head, but the upper end of the estimates that I've heard places the annual Baijiu production of China at about 17 billion liters per year. 17
0: billion liters per year. So how many people are there? 1.4 billion people. (laughs) So there's a fair bit of Baijiu being drunk.
2: <laughs> yes, and only about, I think, 40 to 50% of people in China actually drink alcohol. So you can divide that number in half again. And what I like to tell people <clears throat> to put that number in context is that West Lake in, in uh, Hangzhou supposedly has 15 billion liters of water. So wow. Every year. <laughs> it's a big lake. <laughs> every year. China is producing that much baijiu, an entire lake's worth. Phew. That that is a very very good way to picture it actually, if is, you know it, if you've been to
1: Hangzhou at least. Is it more than than the amount of beer consumed? Which is more beer or baijiu?
2: By volume there's more beer consumed, but I think there's more alcohol consumed in baijiu. Ah, okay.
0: So what about the major companies involved in this business? Who are the big brands and companies that uh, sell baijiu? And you know, do you have any information on how much money they make from this lake of liquor? <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, off the top of my head, I don't have their sales figures. And a lot of them are pretty tight-lipped with these figures because they don't like to draw a lot of attention to themselves. Right. Um, Guizhou Maotai, who has always been the most profitable Baijiu brand in China, in in large part because of their connection with the party, um, reported this year that they grew their business by 9%, which was the first time their growth has dipped below double digits in a very long time. Because of
0: Xi's austerity campaign, I suppose. Exactly, yeah.
2: Um, But despite Xi's austerity campaign... uh, Guizhou Maotai says that within the next year, they're going to raise their production capacity up to, I think, 100,000 tons per year, which is an increase of about 50 to 60% of where they are right now. Wow. Uh, and what about the other
0: companies? Um, the other, companies? other
2: major ones, I think the biggest producer of Baizhou in China right now is Wuliangye in is Yibin. A- in Sichuan. In Sichuan, yes. And they are producing a strong aroma that's made with five grains, hence the name Wu um, And that's made with sorghum, rice, glutinous rice, corn, and wheat. And they are considered to be the leading strong aroma category. Other major players include uh, Lu Zhou Lao Zhao, Shui um, Jing which was... Per- and they're, they're both Sichuan-based. They're, they're both in mm. Sichuan as well. And uh, Jingfong is interesting uh, because they were purchased in 2006 by Diageo, the world's biggest spirit company. So if you're looking for which Baijos have the most international investment, uh, Jingfong is definitely at the front of the pack.
0: Okay. What about uh, in the north? I mean, is Argoto a a significant player? Oh,
2: absolutely. Uh, And
0: which Argoto are we talking (coughs) about? The Red Star or...
2: Uh Well, I've seen contradictory numbers, but Arguato um, has been led for most of its history by Red Star Arguato, which was the very first business registered in the People's Republic of China. And... Uh, It's good to know that the leadership had their
0: priorities straight. (laughs) Well, according to the story... When was that?
2: (laughs) That was for the very first National Day celebration. Apparently, they took a bunch of distilleries throughout Beijing and just threw them all together in a mad mad dash to get Baijiu ready for the ceremony.
0: For 1949, October 1? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes. Mm Oh, wow.
2: So... That's how Ar- Red Star Arguato was created. And that, you know, patriotic pedigree has served it well. You can find it anywhere, at any corner store, anywhere in the country.
0: And it's delightfully cheap.
2: And it's really cheap. And it's the th- favorite tipple of my father-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> um, Neil Anshan <clears throat> right now is considered, I think they, in recent years, have surpassed Red Star
0: in terms of their profitability. Right, Niu Argoto, right. They, they, they've always advertised very, very heavily, at least on Beijing uh, radio stations.
2: Um,
0: considered a more
2: refined and certainly mid- to uh, upper level um, northern Baijo, there's a couple that are really famous. One is Xifengzhou in uh, Xi'an, and another is um, called uh, Funjo, which is made in uh, Shanxi province. Fun, as in what? Like uh, like the like a like the
1: Sunday jiao like oh 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 yeah like okay.
0: particle yeah. Fun, yeah yeah particle booze mm-hmm. particle <laughs> booze powder booze powder whatever, booze. Yeah. So now, as a foreigner, a rather unusual foreigner who has uh, become a nice convert, be to uh, to bai <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you find the reaction of non-Chinese people generally to your evangelizing activities? Well, I would say that,
2: in general, people have been remarkably open-minded. But at the same time, most of the people I meet are self-selecting, who come out to my tastings interested in knowing more. So they're already going in with an open mind. A lot of people have questioned my sanity, particularly (laughs) in the early stages. A lot of people say that they would never like a Baijo, but... Certainly when I'm able to present them with baijos that I think are more appropriate to the foreign palate, most people have responded positively or at least said, oh, that's better than I was expecting.
0: Um, and do you think it might ever be something that people don't uh, drink without food? Because I mean, say in my own case, yeah. I actually am, uh, you know, on your side in a way. I mean, I, I I've grown to like baijiu. Uh, maybe I just like it because it's strong. But um, but I, I've I never drink it without food. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do drink other drinks without food. I mean, do you think it it might actually become a drink that somebody might order in a bar?
2: Yeah, there's a lot of cocktail bars right now, particularly in Shanghai and Beijing, that are starting to introduce a series of baijiu-based cocktails to their um on their bar menus. And some of these are more successful than others, but I can't help but think that the exciting range of new flavors that baijiu presents because there's more than a dozen different categories of baijiu that all taste pretty different from one another. Uh, it's, uh, it strikes me China has not developed the same
1: kind of alcohol culture in the West that we have with wine, for example, where we have connoisseurs. I, I once met a woman. I did some TV shows uh, with some with a Baijiu company. There was I think it was called Lancer Lan Jingdian. Do you know that? You know Do you know that brand?
2: Um,
1: very hoity-toity looking brand. A lot of a, advertising. A, a lot of advertising. I know advertising. Yeah. So that was never drunk probably,
0: it. probably
2: yeah. uh, Yanghe. Yeah, 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 I think that's right. That's yeah, the I went distillery. to their factory.
1: I actually had some of their undiluted stuff, which was like... Yeah, they're out in Jiangsu. Yeah. But anyway, there was a woman there in her 50s who could... With a you know with a blindfold could taste any kind of baijiu and tell you the grain uh, the grains in it the alcohol content and these five flavors that you said are the four was it four F- five four um, five grains yeah five no five different uh oh, degrees nongxiang yeah yeah there's
2: four main types yeah, she of she
1: could she could do that very well and it struck me you know this is like wine but there's not a culture of this but but at, about a couple years ago I was at a friend's house <clears throat> and they brought out. So I've got a special occasion where old friends have brought out something. And it was a bottle of Argo to from the 1980s. Mm-hmm. It was like in
2: 1982.
1: And, the origi- and, and, you know, you see it. And it's this iconic label. And, and that's really from the 1980s. And, and I, I was amazed. You saved this all of these years? Because usually the idea in the 80s was if you had a bottle, you would drink it instantly. Because, you know, that's the purpose. What's, why would you save it? But he said, you know, no, I want to save it for it to age it. Is this a new, I mean, is that a legitimate idea, the same as an aged wine, a fine wine, or is this, I mean, does baijo apply to this, you know, standard of aging the way that wine does, or what?
2: Yeah, most really good baijos are aged for between three and ten years.
1: Ten years? Really? It can oh, be. Oh.
2: Um, but there's a limited return to aging that takes place in the bottle. Most of the important changes that happen in the aging process have to happen um, in with a uh, material that allows in more air. So they're in the vats. They're aging yeah, ten yeah, years. They, in these they vats. age them in big stone or ceramic vats most of the time. And these are usually buried underground or in caves where they are don't have a lot of sunlight to mm-hmm. kind of spoil them. So but but is this a relative how long has that been the case?
1: Is or is this I mean, are there people who in fact can taste a Baijiu and say, ah, yes, this is, you know, vintage or something or they're aged for so many years and so on and so forth.
2: I think among people within the Baijiu industry, that level of knowledge is pretty standard. But among most average customers, there's not much of a culture of connoisseurship. And what you have to remember about China is that unlike, you know, Europe with whiskey or wine that culture of connoisseurship is a few hundred years old. Whereas in China, it hasn't been until the 1980s or even the 1990s that Baijiu's from other parts of the country were widely available to your average person. So most people in China have only just started tasting the kind of Baijiu that they're making halfway across the country. Mm-hmm.
0: You have a question? I can ask it. Please yeah, do. Sure. Another
1: famous Baijiu drinker is Deng Xiaoping, right? Supposedly he right. drank, I guess, breakfast, but certainly every day, lunch and dinner and everything. What, what did he, he drink? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I'm, su- I'm sure he drank something from Sichuan, right? But also, I mean, we, we talk about the health benefits of wine, you know, and everything. Do you think there's uh, health benefits of a glass of, a, of Baijiu lunch and dinner? Or, or how do you feel about that?
2: Well, I can actually answer both of those questions with uh, an anecdote from the same day when I was visiting the Guizhou Maotai. Oh, I thought you said you visited Deng Xiaoping. No, oh. no, no, no. I was visiting there, and they have a museum there with pictures of all the famous people who love Guizhou Moutai. Uh-huh. And there's this fantastic picture of Deng Xiaoping drinking Guizhou Maotai with his like, seven- or eight-year-old grandson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I guess they start them early in (laughs) Sichuan. But one of the things that Guizhou Maotai prides itself on is that it's very good for your health. They say it's good for your liver, that it makes you (laughs) healthy on the inside to drink Guizhou Maotai. And they also say that when you drink Guizhou Maotai, it's impossible to get a hangover. Mm. Is that true,
0: in your experience?
2: (laughs) Well... The damnedest thing happened when I was there. I drank all night with these guys, and they didn't give me any water. And I woke up the next morning feeling great. I don't know if that was coincidence, or maybe they were giving me some fake bijo or something. So do you think know. we can also believe
0: Chinese people when they say that uh, you know, Deng Xiaoping was a chain smoker his entire life uh, in the uh, excellent uh, and succinct um, uh, phrasing of, I think, was it Senator Jesse Helms who said that chain-smoking communist dwarf.
2: <laughs> 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 Maybe chain-smoking is healthy too.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, so we talked a little bit uh, earlier about like alcoholism, David, and we, we sort of were joking you were saying, you know, alcoholics in China, they don't drink alone, but they just make sure they have dinner with somebody who they can finish a bottle of baijiu and get completely smashed. Do you know much about alcoholism in China and its connection to baijiu? I mean, how, you know, are there a lot of alcoholics in China?
2: Well, there's not great statistics on alcoholism rates in China, because a lot of people don't know what alcoholism is. They don't know that it's a disease. They don't know that there is such a thing as a drinking problem. So it's very poorly understood here. But when I was researching this book, I did actually attend a few AA Alcoholics Anonymous sessions in Chengdu and met with the people out there. And a lot of them became alcoholics or discovered that they were alcoholics (laughs) because they're employer required them to drink all the time for their work. And them stopping drinking, them seeking help has been really, really difficult because people just think that they're being bad sports if they say, I don't drink or I'm not going to drink with you. So a lot of these people told me just no one understands them and they there's no real help for them. And most of the people that go to the AA meetings end up just going right back to drinking. Wow. So it's... Quite depressing.
0: I, is the work, that work culture changing? Because, I mean, my own feeling is that when I was first here in the mid-90s, um, I, I, at one point I actually had sort of a part of it. My job was um, uh, the, I, I was the guy who would drink on behalf of a foreign uh, chairman, uh, not chairman, no, the CEO of the the China operations of a foreign company um, that I worked for. But one of the things we basically agreed was part of my job was that I'd do the drinking so that because he didn't <laughs> like to drink and I did and you know it was better for him to be sober when they were negotiating the contract um uh, and I could just go home, go to go to the hotel and sleep and um and it seemed to me that it was really a vital part of doing business you had to do the banquet you had to do the toasting and the gumbe, uh the bottoms up and I get the sense that that's no longer the case do you, do you think it is changing
2: I think it's changing a little bit certainly with the Uh, current austerity drive the government is not supposed to be drinking expensive baijo and having these lavish banquets so that could set a precedent that trickles down to your average businessman but i still feel especially outside of the first tier cities that you can't do business without drinking quite a bit of baijo Mm. it's still really prevalent throughout the countryside how much do you have to worry about a uh, bad Baijo or bootleg
1: Baijo or something and the reason i'm asking is i'm very often in this situation or someone will give me some Baijo or something and it's in one of these clay or ceramic pots with a kind of a you know cork with a wax clumsy wax seal with a or a key that you have to open mm-hmm. it and it's it's so clearly like handmade. it's not like a you know a factory made thing you know and and my inclination is, oh, maybe this is really special stuff that really, uh, you know, has this local homegrown taste that you're not going to get from these. Uh, well, maybe
0: it's battery acid. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's battery
1: <laughs> acid that someone made in their garage, you know. And, and how, much, how much of that, I mean, how much of the packaging very often is the part of the mystique of the whole thing? Or how much should I be a little bit sus- suspicious of what I'm drinking here?
2: Well, certainly a lot of the brands have invested in these really elaborate, hard-to-open Baijiu bottles. Yeah, really ridiculously yeah, really hard. really difficult to open. to open. I think Wu Ye is the most notoriously difficult to open. It takes oh, 20 yeah. steps and a <laughs> yeah, blowtorch they... <laughs> and jackhammer to get the Baijiu out of the bottle. Um, and the reason for that is they want you to <clears throat> break all of this packaging so that it can't be reused and they, someone can't take the bottle and fill it back up with oh, cheap baijo or that's something a, that's That's intentional then. Huh? Yeah, yeah, it is uh, intentional. But part of the problem is if someone is going to go through the trouble to do a reasonable fake of your baijo, they probably have the wherewithal, wherewithal to <laughs> copy your packaging as well. Even easier than
1: the, the alcohol itself.
2: Yeah. Right, but I don't know that worrying about fake baijo is any bigger of a concern than fake anything else, you know, from food to, I don't know.
1: Yeah. Do you you have any idea of how many kinds of baijiu there are in China? I've seen estimates of the numbers of different brands of beer in the world, and they're astronomical. Tens of thousands of brands. Is it China, you know, 100, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000?
2: The most recent estimate that I've heard is that there are around 10,000 distilleries in China. So. That's 10,000 yeah. brands. Yeah, so that's, at well, least. No, no, no. More, that, right? Yeah, and most of these produce several different types of Baijiu. Uh-huh. So there's lots and lots of different kinds of Baijiu. So you, so, You've got your work cut out for you. You've, you've got a, you know, you're your whole a, life ahead of you. What do you mean? I've
0: done my time. <laughs> you've done your time. Now you're back in the States. What are you drinking? <laughs> you're drinking bourbon now. Is that um, – okay. We're starting to run out of time. But before we end uh, with our uh, recommendations section, I'd, we've talked about booze. I'd now like to talk about sex. Um, one of your previous projects was you were the editor uh, of um, – the memoirs of Sir Edmund, uh, how do you pronounce his middle name? Trelawney. Trelawney Backhouse, uh, Edmund Backhouse, a favorite on the (laughs) cynical podcast. And who, you know, I always like to point out that in his memoirs, he, you know, boasts about having, uh, being the lover of the Empress uh, Dowager Tsisi and um, how Mm. she used to um, sodomize him with her very large clitoris. and uh, can you tell us something about how that project came about, how you got involved in, in, in the first reprinting of that book um, since Backhouse's time, I believe?
2: Sure. At the time, I was working as the editor at Earnshaw Books in Shanghai. And while I was working on a book called Tales of Old Peking, um, Edmund Backhouse kept coming up in the you know underworld of old... Beijing. So, one thing that uh, my boss Graham Earnshaw at the time wanted to do was to find out whatever happened to his memoirs because they were referenced in the uh, Trevor Roper's book *Hermit of yeah. King, pretty mm-hmm. extensively, but they had never been published. So, my job became to track these down. They were still in the Bodleian Library at Oxford and we got we ordered a copy of it um we reached out to edmund backhouse's surviving relatives to get their permission to publish it and then we set about the very very difficult task of editing this work because it was written in so many different languages that we had to really bring in a team of translators just to make the work readable how which languages
0: was it written in
2: um it was written i'd say 80% 80 to 90% English and then probably 5% Chinese, 3% Latin. There was Gosh, a lot I did of... know I thought it was originally
0: was written in English. I, I didn't well, know Well, it is it, was it is in it English, is. but
1: he but he's he's, he's this polyglot scholar, uh, amazingly brilliant, you know, IQ and and he sprinkles his texts, you know, liberally with Latin phrases, French phrases, and of course lots of very elegant classical Chinese which he evidently right. could write in very beautifully and it's it's an astounding thing to read it's 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 amazing you you need almost every
2: page needs several glosses and footnotes to even get through it yeah know? we didn't mean to do this because it obviously slowed down the process of reading but we had to put about a thousand footnotes in this to book explain the other just to languages. explain what he was talking about because He would use these languages, but he never translated what he was saying in the other languages. This astounding piece that he basically wrote on his deathbed. Is this correct? Yeah. What happened was he was, towards the end of his life, receiving medical care in the Swiss legation uh, during World War II, and his doctor um, would come and treat him, and he was telling his doctor all these wild stories about his youth, and the doctor said, I'll pay you if you'll just sit down and write this out for me. And I'll, I'll edit it, I'll transcribe it, whatever. Hmm. And he agreed to do it. And the result is both Decadence Manchu and a book called The Dead Past, which is still unpublished, about his wild days in uh, Edwardian England. Yeah, those are more of his European uh, – and how much of that is total bullshit as
1: well? Yeah, because it? one does have to
0: <laughs> point out that he you know, was a – a fabulist and a fantasist uh, yeah. of course he he made up a lot of stuff right claims
1: to have had affairs with uh, all the noted homosexuals in the in Europe practically also and right okay oh <laughs> yes yes yeah, well, no go ahead <laughs> noted we're in noted. Another pod, now part 2 of the podcast <laughs> so, all right gentlemen
0: enough time Time. (laughs) uh, Jeremy, you've really got to do a
1: podcast on decadence. I think we do. So so next time you're
0: (laughs) in town, Derek, maybe we have to do a a special edition on on Backhouse. Um, I'm always happy to talk about Edmund Backhouse. A fascinating character. Let's move on to the final section of our show, which is recommendations. David, what you got for us? Um,
1: Well, Kaiser's not here, so I can recommend something he probably wouldn't want me to recommend, which is... uh, well two things really this is really off topic because we've talked about drunkenness and debauchery and this is really scholarly and boring but I'm a scholar boring <laughs> scholar so but I do drink baijiu a lot so anyway uh, two two resources in case people don't know about them one is from Baidu it's a baijiu is called wenku and it's i think it got in some trouble a few years ago about it's basically a file sharing system where you can have, you know, files and different kinds of things. Where you things.
0: can download pirated books. It, yeah, pirated or books. used to be able
1: to. Used to well, yeah. used to, this is my point. Oh, why think they, Kaiser's not here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they cleaned it up. They did clean it up a little There's. Yeah. I think most of the outright rampant, you know, absolutely blatant piracy has been corrected. But there's still uh, – uh, it's a treasure trove of – for people who used to love to go to, to uh, you know, used bookstores and just – you know, look around for, for obscure treasures. This is like a cyber used bookstore because there are
0: Chinese for, books.
1: No, 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 Every everything. Kind of book. And, and what's really useful is certainly all the classics are there very in very diff, in different versions, but lots of bilingual versions, different English translations. So we're talking about you know, all the Confucian classics, plus a lot of uh, book reviews, things that aren't they're are things in their public domain. And the quality is extremely uneven, just like a book fair or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's gar- most of it's just garbage and most of it's free. Some of it you have to have points, you know, to, to, to download. But, but for someone who's looking for interesting things or is, or is looking for uh, bilingual editions of, of things as for help, especially like Tang Poetry, for example, you can download dozens and dozens of Tang Poem books Tom poetry books with in bilingual edition with different English translations, for example, all free, all in text files or word files. You know, it's all miscellaneous. Cena has its own site too, which is just called I Share, I you know, as in we share. I Share. It's also it's, 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 it's if anything even crazier than the Baidu when cool. Uh, it's got just a lot of really random stuff, but I love to just dig through it. It's wonderful stuff to to put put on my Pleco and read at my leisure and probably back house is in there <laughs> because there's a, there's a Chinese translation of his book. Uh, Did you sort of pay expert. for it? Uh, I paid for it by the sweat <laughs> of my brow. <laughs> Downloading. <Sure>. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's my recommendation. Uh, it's a little bit sleazy. I recommend it with, it's not something I recommend in terms of the legality exactly but it's as someone who loves to download As a reader straight. you recommend yes, it. As, as a scholar let's say. I, I recommend
2: look. pairing it with a nice Arguato. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: yeah. Derek, what you got for us? Um I'd like to recommend a book by a guy called Dr. Patrick McGovern called Uncorking the Past. It's a look at the ways in which scientists are analyzing archaeological sites to find out what people in the ancient world were drinking. And this guy <laughs> was able to discover in Hunan the world's oldest known alcohol. And there's oh, a really... Heard about this. There's yeah. a really
0: great chapter. So the Chinese invented booze too. Is that- yes, yes, <laughs> Yes. they did. Yeah, of course <laughs> they did. Did yeah. you doubt it for a minute? <laughs> no.
2: <laughs> so there's a couple great chapters in this book about how alcohol was used in really, really early... Chinese life, like 9,000 years ago. And I think it's one of the most fascinating things ever written on Chinese alcohol.
1: Spoiler, it was used to get drunk. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I'm just going to have a very quick recommendation, and I think people who are, you know, frightened of baijiu are wussies. And <laughs> if you live in China, you should try argotou because yeah. I think, and the way to try it is with hot pot, with uh, especially northern style hot pot. You know, Xuanyang Rou, lamb dipped in, in in hot water and broth, uh, and just a little bit of argotou if you are scared. But uh, with the food, I think it's it's really a good introduction to why one might want to want to drink it. Um, Great.
2: And, totally and, agreed. In general, I would recommend pairing baijo with the local food of, of where the baijo is yeah. produced. Because Sichuanese baijo goes really well with spicy food. Northern baijiu goes really good with you know something
0: more salty, right. savory. Mm. Well, that does make sense. Okay. Uh, David, Derek, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. And uh, to all of you out there, we will uh, be back next week with another scintillating edition of the Sanuka Podcast. A more sober edition. A more sober (laughs) edition, possibly. (laughs) Well, we'll see. (laughs) 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 Zaijian.